Thank you for joining us this morning. Let me start over here. So we're going to talk about the divine attributes of God, and uh, this is part one of uh, Theology Proper 3. And, and we're going to classify uh, the, uh, the attributes of God. As, there's different ways that people classify it, and we're, we're not going to be so concerned about that in this class because some of these things are kind of imperfect, the way, way we look at God. Um, and the first category of this is communicable versus in, un- uncommunicable or incommunicable attributes. Um, this is uh, the way that I was taught originally from uh, um, Wayne Grudem, uh, I think is the one that uh, is, is one who has done this and explained it this way. The uh, the communicable ones would be the ones that we can see and express that that man can also do. So we can have these things versus the incommunicable, which are the things that we cannot do. Um, we can imitate or we can't imitate them. Omni anything would be the incommunicable attributes of God because we cannot be uh, omnipresent. We cannot be omniscient. We cannot be omnisapient. These are things that are only God could do. So that's one category uh, classification that you could do. Another is observable or non-observable. We can see this about God. We can see this about his attributes or they're behind the scenes, certain things about him. There's no real clear-cut Distinction, though, when when you try to categorize it this way, absolute versus relative is is a third way you could look at God's attributes. These are absolute things that we know. There's no question about it, um, and it doesn't change at all. Versus relative that maybe is based upon the situation and the way that it's working. Um, we can see the absolutes in the way God relates to his communi- to his uh, um, to his creation uh, is, is the way that, that those distinctions are made. Then there's a moral versus a non-moral uh, distinction. These are things that are really dealing with morality and things that are not. But essentially, when we look at it, we have to uh, admit there are no non-moral attributes of God. They're all important of who he is. Uh, the reason we want to be careful about these categories uh, because it might affect your uh, conclusions about God, how you think about him. You're kind of putting him in a box there. Um, I, I'm not uh, choosing these broad categories. Steve does not. Um, we don't really want to use, we would rather use specific categories and we, we look at it. And we're going to look at every single uh, category we can think of here. Uh, the, why uh, they're logical and, and they would make sense to you. We're finite human beings, aren't we? And often we try to put God in a box. And sometimes that's what happens when you try to think in a man's mind, this is what we're trying to think of God, and we can't always do that. So that's just kind of an introductory note there about classifying them. what we want to first look at is, is the introductory concept of transcendence and eminence. Have you heard those terms before? Okay, Transcendence and eminence. Transcendence is how is God above us? He is above everything. He is uh, just over anything we can't think even beyond our brains because he's so much above us. So he's transcendent of all of life. But then he's, his eminence is he at the same time he is with us. So not only is he at the same time above us, but he is also with us closely at the same time time. And it's not a goal to balance, okay, when is it this much of his eminence, this much of his transcendence? Is he with 
us or is he distant from us? But it's both at the same time, 100%. He is always above us and he is always with us. And it's an important category to look at that. Both are expressed in Isaiah 57:15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. So you see that? So it's both at the same time. He is both up there holy, but also he is with us. Jeremiah twenty three twenty three. I am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. So it's both is what he's saying there. Verse 24 and 25 after that um, emphasizes this. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? So he is eminent. He is above us at the same time. Uh, he is with us at the same time. He is transcendent. Secondly, we want to look at God. Oh, there we go. How about that? See? There's your verses. You want a second to get those? Write those down. Sorry about that. See, I told you. I'm, somebody want to handle this for me? <laughs> I'll work on this. Okay. So God, secondly, uh, is self-existent. God is self-existent. I want to give you a definition of that. And that is, God depends on nothing else for existence, but has eternally existed without any external or prior cause. He is the uncaused cause. He is not tied to the universe metaphysically. Okay? That's a lot to say. Uh, this has formerly been called the doctrine of aseity, the aseity of God. It's from the Latin phrase assay, or from itself. So God is from himself. That's important to know. So he alone is the creator. There is no other creator. It is God. He stands only in that place above us. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. So we, we know that. Um, before that. Um, Psalm 33, 6 through 9, gives a statement of God as creator. And, uh, and this understanding should cause mankind really to, to stop and think about this. Let me read this, Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. You see that? Verse 6 there is the cause of verse 8. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made is the cause of let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So there's a cause of that because he is the creator. We should be in awe of what he has done. He is prior to all things. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 All creation is dependent on God's power, but God is not dependent upon creation. 
me read that section there, Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation? For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and him all things hold together. This is a monumental uh, section here of Scripture that talks about God. And if you want to really circle in your Bible a place that's a really good explanation of who he is, this is a a real important one. He is prior to all things. It's important because he is self-existent. We're going back and and why is he self-existent? Because he is prior to all things. He has done all of that for us. Next, God is omnibenevolent. These are is one of the omnis, benevolent, love. God is love. First John four eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then Exodus thirty four, six and seven. The Lord passes before him passed before him as Moses. And proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who, but who will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's answering Moses' prayer. He had a prayer just before that in verse 13 of uh, chapter 33. So now I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that they may find favor in your sight. Um, See that this is a nation, that this nation is your people. So Moses is asking that question of, you know, God, show me who you are that I may find favor in your sight. And he gets this answer of, of who he is. Important to know that God is love. There's a whole group of uh, attributes that are, that are packed in this, of focusing on the love of God. So we're going to go through some of those. Uh, first one is compassion. Compassion, this, this uh, synonym is merciful. God is merciful. The definition here is uh, divine favor to those in distress or misery as opposed to the judgment they deserve. Not giving people what they deserve. That is compassion. And I'm sure you've had people give compassion on you. You deserve something and they don't give that to you. They give you something else instead, which is compassionate. So this plays out in in many different ways. The first is mercy on sinners. God has mercy on sinners. That is important for us. We need that mercy. Hosea 11, 1 through 3. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I mean, God's compassion there on Israel was was just amazing. And it's the same thing. That's the same omnibenevolent God that is doing that for us. So secondly, he has mercy on his people. Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And that should be us. We fear him. He will have love upon us. He will have compassion upon us. Okay, 
here. Jesus also uh, demonstrated mercy while he was here on earth. That was part of his character. Obviously, we should see it uh, throughout his life here. Luke seven thirteen. And when the Lord saw her, this was a woman who had a need. He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. That's an emotion that he's having of compassion. Here's how compassion forms then what we want to look at on each one of these is a path to the cross. It's important to know that there's a reason for this um, attribute of God. It forms a path to the cross. It should always, compassion should always form a path to the cross. Titus 3, 4 and 5 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it is his mercy that has compassion upon us. We know that. That takes us to the cross because of what he did in particular right there at the cross. That's most important for us. Okay, so that's compassion. Next, we want to look at his graciousness. God is gracious. That's one of his attributes. The definition here, God shows goodness towards the ill-deserving, unmerited favor, not just punishing, but showing goodness actually is what that is. He's showing favor. Graciousness. We're going to talk about three different categories of grace that God has given to us. And it's good to know this and, and kind of put a little separation in your mind of, of these because they do f- fall into different, different ways you want to look at this. The first one would be, whoops, would be common grace. Common grace is God's goodness and patience in sustaining creation in general and mankind in particular. We have uh, Psalm 145, 9, um, uh, Colossians 117, Acts 17, 28, and Matthew 5, 43 through 45. And that Matthew passage, we probably all know it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Mankind in general doesn't need to have God's grace upon them, but he gives that. He gives the air that we breathe. So God is gracious. As sinners, we should instantly be killed because of his his righteousness, but we're not. It's his common grace to all of mankind that gives us this uh, daily things that we get in common grace. There's benefits in common grace. Our physical life, air we breathe, family, human society, uh, even our governments over us that create some order, goodness, uh, an experience of creativity and beauty. The sunsets, that is a common grace that goes to unsaved people. They see the same sunset we do. I was just uh, texting with my sisters. I have one who's, uh, I don't know, she's a witch or something like that. She's really off. She's like 80 years old now. And she talks about what a beautiful sunset and isn't Mother Earth wonderful and all this other stuff. It's like, good night. How do you respond to that? But God is gracious to give us all these beautiful things. That is part of his common grace to everyone. Secondly, would be saving grace. Saving grace. This is God's goodness extended to the elect to establish a harmonious relationship in place of spiritual enmity. We spiritually are enemies of God, but God then changes that and gives grace so we have a harmonious relationship with him. And uh, this is manifested in Christ. 
it'd be a, a great place to see that. First John, I'm sorry, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that who God is, and he is full of glory, full of grace and full of truth, uh, is manifested in him. And that is the saving grace, what he did for us. Then we also see it given as a gift, unmerited um, salvation, right? I mean, isn't that part of that? Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would be uh, no, grace would no longer be grace if we did that. So his grace is important to us. Thirdly, would be a sanctifying grace. So we have a, a common grace that we that all of mankind would have. We would have a. Uh, Saving grace and then a sanctifying grace. This is an ongoing grace in our lives. It's God's goodness extended to his people to equip and strengthen them to follow him faithfully. So it's only by God's grace that we can daily walk and get over these sins that we have and the things that we do every day. He gives us spiritual gifts. That is a grace of God, is our spiritual gifts. Romans twelve six. We have strength for trials. When there's trials that come up in our lives, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's God's grace in those trials. And that's what we rely on. And praise God, he gives us that. So we look at his graciousness. How does that lead us to the cross and form a path to the cross? I think we, uh, we could easily say that uh, um, a desire on God's part to extend to the elect unmerited favor, yet in order not to violate his own holiness, he had to figure out a way to do that. He had to have a penalty for sin out there. And that was Christ that did that, that we can rest in his grace to us through that salvation. So with the cross is, again, the centerpiece of that. Next section of uh, omnibenevolence is his patience. His patience. A definition there, God delays his wrath and pours out his love and grace on creation while sinners are brought to repentance. This is how he does it. He delays his wrath. He's patient with us. God chooses, chooses to sustain creation after the fall. In fact, it was planned far advance of the fall, wasn't it? And he still had, had patience with the fall. He's had patience with mankind. He created us knowing that we would fall. Well, that's amazing that he would have that kind of understanding and knowing where we are going. Except, yep, I know it's going to happen, but they're going to give me glory at some point. Um, he does not bring complete judgment to sinners while his redemptive plan unfolds. Think about that. I mean, he could just quickly say, nope, this guy, he's far gone. I'm not going to have patience with him. I'm just going to judge him right now. Acts 17.30 covers that. And Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, that's his faith, he passed He passed over the sins previously committed. Praise God that he's patient with each of us, isn't it? It is amazing that he's patient. We we need that daily, and we're thankful for his patience. This would be one of those communicable ones. Yes, we can have patience when others sin against us. In the same way, we can have a Christ-like patience, but yet we're not God. But you can see how man made in God's image might have some of these, these things. 
Uh, he also provides an opportunity to repent. That's important for us. If we didn't have that opportunity, we'd be in trouble. Second Peter 3, 9 and 15 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So we should have this same uh, patience. It provides us an opportunity to repent in that process. So how does patience form a path to the cross? Instead of destroying the earth after sin, God promised a Savior, didn't he? Genesis 3.15, he would make a way. There would be a, a one who would come after you who would bruise Satan's heel and crush him. We know that God has that patience for us for a purpose. The next issue of omnibenevolence would be his kindness or God's being kind. In our Bibles, uh, the Hebrew word there, hesed, is the word that's uh, interpreted here often as kind. There's a lot of different ways that it's, it's said, it's translated. This definition, God has a love for his covenant people that emphasizes his kindness and faithfulness. That's kind of the two mixed together is kindness and faithfulness. This has said in the Old Testament is 245 times. It's all throughout there. We see God's loving kindness. We see his graciousness. We see his love for us in that way. This is most often associated with his covenant people, with Israel, those to whom he made promises in the Old Testament. We see it translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. I'm sure you know Lamentations 3, uh, 22 and 23. In the RSV, it says, there was a song. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's has said. That's talking about that same thing. Great is his faithfulness <clears throat> or his, his kindness. I'm sorry. How does kindness form a path to the cross? Well, God is never going to break his covenant with us. We can trust him. We know that. That takes a kind God to do that. He's always going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can trust in his kindness. Oops, see, you beat me again. I didn't get going here. Get you the verses there so you can see those. Give you a second. I can only think with... One thing at a time. My hand doesn't think with it. Like video games? I can't do video games. Sorry. Okay. Next, we want to look at uh, faithfulness and true as part of his uh, benevolence. Those are attributes about him that we want, to, we want to define. And this is God is the only authentic God. And all that he says and does is consistent with the reality that he has decreed. He decrees it. What is it? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, that's the way it should be. We can trust him. He is true. He is faithful. Um, There's some biblical concepts of trueness, what that is. Faithful and true, they're closely related. He is the only authentic God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this. And we're going to contrast this with uh, Isaiah 44:14 to 20. Let me read this because this is a fairly lengthy passage, but the end of it really, I think, ties it together really well. Thinking of God being the only faithful and true God. In order to cut cedars for himself, this is talking about man, um, 
He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also kindles a fire to bake bread. He also works to produce a god and worships it out of the same wood. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats his meal. As he warms a roast and is satisfied, he also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they will have no insight. No one causes this to return to his heart, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, also baked bread over its coals, I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul. He cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? What a great passage there, Isaiah 44 passage. That's, that is the truth of our idols. And mankind nowadays, we don't make the same idols, wooden ones that they would worship, but we have our idols of materialism, of um, prestige, uh, many, many different idols in our lives. But we can count on God as our one true one that we should be worshiping because he is faithful. He is true. Also, this involves truthfulness. God's knowledge and declarations conform to his character. He always tells the truth. We know that. Titus 1-2, In the hope of eternal life, which, is the, which the God who cannot lie promises from all eternity. We know that. We can trust that. Psalm 119, uh, 145 to 152 also covers his truthfulness. So how does his truthfulness or his faithfulness form a path to the cross? God said that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient. It was sufficient for us to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. You can trust in this and hope is not vain because we can be sure of him because it is true. I mean, who else has something that we can trust in so well as the Bible to tell us his truth and who he is? That's important for us. Next thing we want to look at is God is righteous. So, after omnibenevolence, this would be the next um, issue we're looking at. And there's a whole bunch of these things. God is righteous. A definition here. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. We have to use that. We have to have an absolute standard. The world does not have a standard of right and wrong, do they? And they're more and more increasingly trying to just destroy and blur the line between right and wrong. And they're calling good evil and evil good. And it it frustrates us, doesn't it? Because we we know the truth. And we say, no, there is righteousness. There is a right way to act. Well, God epitomizes what is right. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock... His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Wow, that's pretty solid. We can trust God as our rock of righteousness. Psalm eleven seven. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So we can trust him in that. 
Psalm 119.9, the fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous all together. So we can trust that he is righteous there. And Jesus is the righteous one. He is the righteous one. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He is the righteous one. And we are the unrighteous ones. The Old Testament confirms this as a prophecy in Isaiah 53, 11. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, looking forward to Christ, he will see it and be satisfied. That's of God the Father. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. It took a righteous one, didn't it? We could not be the righteous one. We don't have any righteousness. It took a righteous sacrifice. And that was Jesus. We know that. And that should be always one of his attributes. Well, a question here. Why is whatever conforms to God's moral character right? Why, if, if it, why is it that everything that conforms to God's moral character right, is right? It's because God decided it's right. God is therefore the final standard. We don't have any other standard than God. That's our key. We cannot use any other standard to judge what is right or wrong. This is placing ourselves in judgment over God. And this is what unbelievers do all the time, don't they? They try to establish a standard without having one at all. They have no respect for the word of God. God is the final standard. You can't logically apply any other standard to measure anything. He is that standard. And so the Old Testament pointed towards him. And then when he lived here on earth, when he spoke, we have all that recorded. We can now look and say, yes, it's confirmed. He is the righteous one. So how does his righteousness form a path to the cross? I think that's pretty clear. The sacrifice for your sins had to be a perfect sacrifice made inherently by the only inherently righteous one. We know that to be true. There was only one that could fulfill that. So that is our path. God's Because of that attribute, we know there was a purpose in that, and it points us to the cross. Another attribute of God is that God is just. God is just. This is going to be a fun one. The definition here. God's official righteousness in that he required other moral agents to adhere to his standard. So he's just. He's created a standard. We need to adhere to that standard. Because of that, God's judgment is final and correct. We have to trust it, and that is what is the only basis for what is right and what is wrong and what is just. Romans 2.5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's coming, people. I'm going to judge you. You're going to get this judgment poured out upon you eventually because I am a just God. We know that. His judgment is final. 2 Thessalonians 1.5 This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So we know that when God causes us to suffer, there is judgment that we deserve. It's part of all that. We deserve it. We know that God will punish evil. He says that he will. There's going to be justice. 
Righteousness requires that sin be punished. You read Psalm chapter 7. It's pretty brutal where David was praying that God would do all of these evil things. He would just do these things. And he said, you know, get them, God. You know, stomp them out. They need this to be happening to them because they deserve it. Be just to them. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. Let me read that. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to use us as well as the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our witness to you was believed. I mean, it's it's a get them. They need to deserve it. First, he gave us his righteousness. We didn't deserve that. But in his judgment, he has to be just and he has to deal with these things. We know that God will reward good at the same time. This is remunerative justice. And we know that only the righteous can truly do good. We can't do it in and of ourselves, can we? Romans 3.12, all That's all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's none who do good, not even one. We talk about righteousness by faith, Romans 1, 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So we need to live by faith because we know that God is just and we don't want to sin because we don't want God's wrath upon us continuing, although we know that it has been washed away through his blood. The key there is God generally rewards the righteous for their obedience. Obedience isn't what makes us righteous, right? You know, I used to think when I was a little kid, you know, I'm going to be perfect and and I'm going to meet God's standard. (laughs) Right. You can't do that. It's God's standard is so far above us. There's no way that we can. And that's righteousness isn't what makes us right. No, it's God that does. So how does justice cause a path or form a path to the cross, God's never going to overlook sin permanently. There must be a payment for sin. All that sin by others that doesn't seem fair, you see somebody, man, how are they getting away with this? And David talks about, how does the wicked get away with this? They should be punished. It seems like all of them don't have any response from this. No, all that sin by others doesn't seem fair. God never overlooks any of it. But the cross can wipe it out for any individual, no matter how far they have sinned, even for me. And that's amazing. Justice God wants to provide, but it's then balanced with his grace to us. We've already talked about. So that is God's justice. Next would be God is immutable. God is immutable. Definition of immutability is God is unchangeable in his essence, character, and will. He's unchangeable. There's ways that he does not change. We're going to look at a couple of those. First, 
is God's being. His being doesn't change. Psalm 102.26, it's immutable. Even they will perish, but you will remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will, be cha- you will change them, and they will be changed. So God doesn't change. That's his immutability there. Secondly is in his truthfulness. His truthfulness. He's immutable. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not establish it? He doesn't change. Ultimately, there's a question should be in our minds as to whether or not God is going to be complete in his divine plan and decree. And we have to say, yes, he will. We know that God will do that. So how do we understand the biblical accounts of divine change? It's getting a little tricky here. How do we understand... Oops, here's his plan. His mercy is mutable. Am I missing a page here? I am missing a page. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Let me back up a second then. We're going to look at his plan... Right here, his plan is immutable. Psalm thirty-three, eleven. His the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. So his plans are out there; they don't change. He stands forever. We know that he has had a plan before the foundation of the world. Next would be his mercy is immutable. Psalm one hundred three, seventeen. But the loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. That's a long time before eternity past and into eternity in the future. His mercy will not change. We can count on that. His faithfulness is immutable. Malachi 3, 6. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So he has in his mind things that will not change. It's important to know he is faithful for us. It doesn't change. His goodness is immutable. James 1, 17. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, no variation, or no shifting shadows. Important to know that his goodness is there. God is dependable. We know who he is. We look at scripture. We see his attributes. We know he will not change. That's important to know that, isn't it? Okay, but there's a debate here about this. We have to think, is God changeable? What about passages in the Bible where it seems that he changed? The Bible speaks of him changing his mind. Hmm, how are we going to rectify that with everything we just said? Jonah 3.10, Exodus 32, 10-14, Judges 2.14, Psalm 18, 26-27, and uh, Jeremiah 26.19, and Amos 7.3. All of those are examples of, there's some context that talks about God changing. Well, let's look at a couple of them. First example would be Jonah. We'll get to that in a second. With Jonah. Um, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, that is the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God said he's going to do this, and he didn't do it. Uh Uh-oh, God changed. How are we going to handle that? How, how How do you rectify that? God repented, is what it says in the King James Version. Wow, God's repenting? Or Judges 2.18 
Whenever the Lord raises up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. God was moved to pity, and he changed the judgment that he was going to give them. So he changed there. We have two extremes in ways of looking at this. The first would be classic theology. Classic theology would would say that God is utterly incapable of any change whatsoever. That to give what is even a perception to a change in direction is to say that God changed his character. Well, that can't be. The Bible's full of example of God giving choices and responding accordingly. Doesn't God do that with man? He gives his choices. You do this, and I'm going to do that. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come to you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. So, going in a certain direction, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to do this if you do that. So, often Often in Scripture, we'll see that God does give opportunity for change, and he then has a different pathway planned for that. So we, we have to be careful saying God is incapable of any change whatsoever. But the second side of this is open theism. Open theism says that God adjusts and changes as he interacts with humans. As he sees what they do, he's going to make changes in his direction, changes in his thought. Uh, he doesn't always have the full plan already mapped out for everything. No, that's the way God is. is he, he changes whatever he wants whenever he wants. Well, that can't be either. If so, then ultimately there's a question as to whether or not God will complete his divine plan and his decree. He says that he's going to save us. He says that he's going to return. Is that even going to happen? Do we worry about that, about God changing? You know what? Yeah, I just kind of decided I'm done with this earth. Poof. It's all gone. There's no rewards. There's nothing. I'm not going to return. That's how you could get down an avenue there that would just go into that through open theism. So we reject open theism. So how do we understand the biblical accounts of divine change? Important to know that. Well, first, what we perceive as divine change is always in the context of personal relationships. If you look at every one of the passages, if God is utterly incapable of all conceivable change, then how are relationships possible? How can you have a relationship with others and the changes that you're going to make based upon decisions and things you do, uh, who you marry and stuff like that? God has to be able to know what's going on with all of that simultaneously. What we perceive, secondly, as divine change uh, always falls under the broader scope of his overarching plan. So he knows what's going on. He knows that. An example, if you have come to faith in Christ, you will go to heaven. You will be made into the image of God. We know that. And if you were not saved, you would not be going into heaven. You have a choice. A lot of men have, have done that. I mean, you've we have to look at it that way. Men, you love your wives. It's difficult to do that sometimes. We have to still do that. Women, to submit to your husbands, are you going to be a choice there or are you going to be rebellious? These are choices that are going to affect our eternal rewards. So we have choices and God knows what those choices are, whether or not we get a reward or not. 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 12 and following cover that. What we perceive as divine change never 
comes even close to affecting the fact that God is unchangeable in his essence, his character, and his will. So that's the important part. His essence does not change. We talked about his essence already. His character does not change, and his will does not change. But he can change the course of anything he wants. He has the power and the ability to do that in any way that he wants. That is not a dichotomy of God changing. So when with Nineveh, and God said, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, and he didn't, he did it because he then knew that that's what he wanted to do. And the whole place got saved. It was amazing. Yes, another 70 years later, they all went total different direction again, and he did destroy them. So we, we know that God will take care of things ultimately. So how does his immutability form a path to the cross? We know that God promises in Genesis 3.15 to send a Savior to crush the head of Satan. He always keeps his promises. It's important to know that, that God always keeps his promises. He will not change in those areas of his character, his will, and his essence. Does that help? I mean, because you probably get people, oh yeah, God changed it. No, he doesn't. So think of it in, in those terms. We want to look at God being impassable. Impassable. Impassable, that's a weird word. It's from uh, the Greek apathesis, apathias, where we get the word apathetic. Apathetic, yeah, what is apathetic? Um, this impassable means God, all God's actions flow from his own will. No experience can be imposed upon him from an external force. There is no external force greater than him, so we know that. Um, He can't be changed in those ways. This doesn't mean that God doesn't have any emotions. We know that he does. Scripture tells us of God feeling love, feeling delight, pleasure, anger, divine hatred, sorrow. All of those we see in Scripture. But God transcends any emotion associated with human characteristics. Again, at the beginning, I said, we try to look this in human eyes, and our character is very dear. We don't understand God. It's, it's so much higher than us. So we have to just take this by faith. God transcends all of these. Obsession, greed, fits of anger, malice, despair. We have all of those emotions. We feel those all the time. And they're usually because something else has put pressure upon us that we feel that. We feel desperate because of a situation that has happened to us. God does not. Any emotions God has, he always perfectly controls. His emotions never control him. And remember, we're made in his image, not the other way around. We try to think of him being like us, and he isn't. There's, again, oops, two extremes here. Let's see if I got it here. Nope, let me go back a second. Yeah, there's two extremes. God's uh, description of God's emotions are just anthropopathisms. There's a new word for me. I, I had to look it up. Anthropopathisms. Try to say that one three times. Anthropopathisms. That's attributing human passions to God as a means by which we're trying to describe him. Anthropopathisms. If this is true, then his love for us is not emotional, and his anger or grief over sin is not emotional. Or the other extreme, God responds to his own emotions and changes his, his mind as a result of those, and he does not. So there's a mediating view between the two of these that uh, God does have emotions, but they're always consistent with his character. We recognize that. It's always with his character. We have to understand that. But he has emotions. 
Impassibility says that no part of his creation can inflict suffering, pain, or any distress upon God apart from his will. So it can happen, but it's part of his will that is allowed. That's the reason that we get our sufferings and we go through these trials is because his will allows it. And he knows that. D.A. Carson's has a great quote here that, uh, that Steve uses. I'll read that to you. If God loves, it is because he chooses to love. If he suffers, it's because he chooses to suffer. God is impassable in the sense that he sustains no passion, no emotion that makes him vulnerable from the outside, over which he has no control or which he has not foreseen. Well, that's amazing who our God is. We know that. So how does God's impassibility form a path to the cross? Well, the suffering of Christ was God's choice. That's amazing. He chose to do that. That was his pathway to figure out how he would have this plan. He wasn't backed into a corner. It wasn't a last-ditch effort. It wasn't a, oh, gee, I think this is the way I'm going to make it work. No, the compassion and the love God has was his choice. And that really should be of a, a great comfort to us. His impassibility is a part of it. I hope this uh, textbook type lesson um, helps you love God more. I know I, uh, re- in reviewing this lesson, I was quite refreshed. Just thinking on God's attributes, it makes me want to love him more and to sin less. Wouldn't these notes make a great guide on how to pray? You know, in your prayer time, sometimes just take and we should be going through adoration of Christ, adoration of God the Father. And it's a great way to do it in your prayers, help you stimulate your minds on the attributes of God. Um, And for that, we can rejoice. So I hope you do rejoice in that. All right. Let me close in prayer. Gracious God, we can look now because of your salvation upon us and we can thank you for all these attributes. You are a perfect God. You knew this before the foundation of the world. And, and we can now take and categorize some of these ideas about you, thoughts about you, and, and we can, can try to put a scope around you, but we can't because you are so far above us. You transcend anything of humankind. Um, I pray that our love for you grows more because of hearing this, that we want to serve you more. We want to love you more. We want to be obedient. We want to remove sin for our, from our lives. Because of who you are, we want to be more Christ-like. Be with us uh, in the next hour as we, uh, we hear your word even further uh, drilled into our brains. And may it then turn into actions, the way we love others, the way we respond to others. So we pray this in your name. Amen.